Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, you're there and we're here, but we're not here in the same place. Like normal, unfortunately, uh, we are only able to uh, be with each other virtually. And uh, I'm here in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and my name is C.R. Wiley, and I am a pastor. I serve a church in Battleground, Washington, or actually, I live in Battleground, Washington, and the church I serve is in Vancouver, Washington, which is just a couple of communities over. But uh, I have been a professor of philosophy. I've uh, written some books, and the latest book is the, in the house of Tom Bombadil. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, Tom, how about you? Tell us about yourself. I'm Tom Price. I, I'm a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and uh, teach philosophy as well. I'm teaching all of those different places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. All right. And Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and I've got a bunch of books out. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's my day today, and I want to talk about ducks and rabbits, or the duck mm-hmm. rabbit. You know what I'm talking about. This drawing that we have right here that uh, people can see who you know are on Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, but those of you out there in podcast land listening to us you know, through a podcast platform and you're driving around, you'd probably know what I'm referring to. You've probably seen that uh, simple line drawing in which uh, you have uh, an image that could be uh, a rabbit, or it could be a duck. It all kind of depends on how you look at it. And uh, this particular kind of visual, I guess, uh, joke or visual uh, puzzle uh, has been around a little while. And uh, it originally, at least as far as I, I was able to, to learn uh, using that great research tool, the internet, first appeared in a German human humor magazine in the late 19th century. And that's the image that we're using here is actually from that magazine. But most folks are familiar with a much cruder uh, rendition of it. Uh, but uh, the uh, more sophisticated uh, place you can learn about the duck rabbit is in Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein was a very important philosopher, kind of in the analytic school, and uh, did a lot with language and so forth, was considered one of the great savants of the early 20th century, mid-20th century, and certainly uh, is, uh, you know, somebody that is worth thinking uh, with and reading. And uh, so, anyway, what are we doing with the duck rabbit here at the (laughs) uh, Theology Podcast? Well, sometimes... Sometimes people wonder, uh, sometimes people ask, why do we have to like think about some of the matters that you guys talk about in the show? Shouldn't we just be able to read the Bible, kind of interpret it, and just kind of move on? I mean, why, why make things complicated like this? Well, the reason why we need to think about, uh, I guess, philosophical uh, you know, notions, ideas, proposals, etc., is because uh, philosophers are often dealing with some of the more challenging uh, questions related to how do we understand things, how do we understand the world. And uh, even though we have our Bibles and the Bibles that we read uh, present to us uh, material that uh, is intended to enrich us and uh, inform us and make us wise, nevertheless, some of the problems that we have when it comes to reading the Bible 
or even thinking about our faith and how to practice it. And in particular, uh, I'm thinking the sacraments and how we're to understand them. Uh, these, these matters really have a kind of, kind of a philosophical, I guess, uh, framework within which we're thinking kind of, uh, without even realizing we're doing so. And many of the, t- much of the time we're thinking about, um, you know, the, the matters that we, we more or less think of as common sense in a particular way that maybe characterizes, um, you know, the way people generally think about things in the world today. And people, uh, when they say, isn't this just common sense? Isn't it's just the way, you know, we should think about these matters. Don't realize that the way they're going about the task of thinking about whatever it is they're thinking about, let's say the Lord's Supper, they're actually thinking about it in, in, in ways that, you know, sort of uh, philosophers and theologians kind of hammered out centuries before. Uh, and in those days, people thought about these matters differently. Now, one of the things to think about when it comes to, uh, you know, just reading the Bible or uh, thinking about the sacraments or just, you know, thinking about even ourselves and our place in the world is uh, the, the, we have we have this uh, this challenge uh, of interpreting uh, reality or interpreting texts or interpreting uh, signs and symbols. And what the duck rabbit does is it presents us with uh, troubling uh, you know, sort of a challenge uh, for interpreting a sign or a, a symbol or a text that perhaps could be looked at in different ways and different meanings could be driven from it. So when you look at the duck rabbit, obviously you've got, you know, a duck and a rabbit, or <laughs> maybe not. So anyways, that's, that's the, that's the, the situation we face, uh, you know, when it comes, you know, as we're, we're faced with when we, it comes to interpreting just anything in the world, but it's kind of brought to our attention through the duck rabbit problem. Are we looking at a duck? Are we looking at a rabbit or are we looking at both or are we looking at neither? Anyway, any thoughts you guys have on any of that? Well, first of all, I think you've already cooked the deal because I think the original <laughs> reference to it was a rabbit duck, not a duck rabbit. There you go. There you go. I'm, I'm a part of the duck rabbit school as opposed to the rabbit duck school or however you put it. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, can ducks get rabid? I mean, that's... Well. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, it, it gets into a lot of the complex issues that, that come up, especially as you see um, culture around us lose uh, more and more connectedness and mooring to Christian interpretations of things. Um, so what we mean by nature, for example, <laughs> um, could be, could look at I mean, the difference between what, or creation, um, looking at it as uh, nature, um, as if it's kind of, uh, has some kind of self-sustaining being of its own, um, and therefore defined everything from the surface, or that which can't necessarily be represented this way, but is this fuller meaning of what it is as, as dependent on, sustained by, and governed by God. And that's one dimension. Um, but you can really look at this in terms of, of the way in which looking at something and the using of our senses um, gives us access to things, but that access can get cloudy when it's giving us access to something that can be taken within a wide range of of differing points of emphasis or perspective. Even just seeing it as a duck wouldn't 
would raise all kinds of issues. I mean, what is a duck? <laughs> you know, what is the significance of it? Um, you know, all, any kind of definition of anything. But when you have a, a sign um, that can po- be point to more than one thing based on uh, what is given the, centri- the, the emphasis from the sensations, I think it's a difference between apprehension and judgment. I mean, maybe I could leave it there. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, that's a great way to kind of uh, get us into the larger conversation. Um, I think that oftentimes this is used as a way to sort of undermine the confidence of the reader or undermine the confidence of the knower. This is like a a technique that people who are out to promote relativism use to say, well, how do you know that that's actually the case? Maybe it's just the way you're looking at something that uh, makes or leads you to believe that this is so. If you look at it this way, it could be equally the case uh, if you had that perspective. And so perspective, I, perspectivalism is something we've talked about a lot in the show, or situ, you know, our situatedness in terms of how it shapes our, 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 our apprehension of the world and our, and our understanding of our place in it and the values that we accord to different things can, can get you into this, this sense of, well, who's to say? Who's to say this is the case and not that and so forth? Any thoughts about that? It seems to me is pretty much every time I've heard any discussion of this other than, gee, this is a cool optical illusion. Right. Um, Or as my son would say, it's not an optical illusion. It just looks like one. (laughs) Um, Right. That's that's actually actually someplace I want to go. But go ahead. Finish up. Yeah. Yeah. Every discussion I've seen of this is designed to say that there is no correct interpretation of anything. Everything is perspectival. Right. Yeah. You know, what this brings up, it brings to my mind uh, that that very statement that your son made, Glenn, is, uh, Renee, is it uh, Magrite? Uh, this is not a pipe. You're familiar with the, with yeah, the image? Magrite. Yeah. Magrite. Yeah. Yeah. So, so is there, you know, the, 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 the painting is of a pipe. And then uh, in French, beneath the pipe, it read, you know, it reads, it translated, this is not a pipe. Well, you look at it and you say, well, of course it's a pipe. I, I see it's, it's, it's a pipe, right? But actually it's a representation of a pipe. It's, it's actually yeah. just paint on a canvas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, that that's gets, what you're really looking that, at. That gets to Wittgenstein's point here, I think, it, it, with this, is that what, what he was always talking about, for example, words don't get – words, when we confront the, the, the sign character of things, right, we're, we're dealing – the conceptual aspect – we're dealing with something beyond simple apprehension. We're dealing already with judgment. We're, we're evaluating, you know, the, the being of something. But what he's trying to get at is that when we lift it out into abstraction, right, if these things are not more closely connected, this was something Aquinas was saying, if these things are not more connected, um, then what you do is you have you have them rich you have them ripped from the wider creational context, if you will. I'm using a Christian interpretation, which helps situate what these things are within the the larger plane of reality. So if you're just lifting this out as as a drawing, for example, um, yeah, you could kind of look at two different emphases, but it's already abstracted from its concrete embodiment if you will and so, which is that which is that creation ground or mediation of of the meaning um this is very central to to an incarnational metaphysics that that uh, th- that words and and their connection to creation help differentiate 
what interpretations of it and judgments about it can be consistent with it versus those that aren't. Yeah, and of course, we don't uh, actually see people confusing ducks and rabbits in the in the world. You know, the, we're talking about this particular drawing that's presenting the yeah. duck rabbit to us in a particular right. way. And it, it, that's actually intended to confuse us. And so this is an artistic, uh, you know, a sort of a artifact we're talking about here and not the thing itself. But we can see that it's referring to uh, rabbits. We can see that it's also referring to ducks and and playfully kind of, uh, you know, I guess, bewildering us. And but the but the point that you just made, uh, Tom, about you know, what we have in, you know, the physical world, you know, those points of reference, there's no confusion there. Uh, we can, we can look at rabbits, we can look at ducks and we can say they're different. Yeah. And it does, it also raises the question, you know, when, when you move it to the sign character of things, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm I would say words, but in here case, a drawing or art, um, then of course you do bring it by lifting it up out of, kind of the the kind of creaturely constraints of 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 life uh in its concretion um you end up opening it up to a kind of a, a different way a different web and range of meanings right um and and that of course what an artist will play with right you can take something yeah. recontextualize it in art and and all of a sudden open something that would be a duck in one situation to being something else or referring to something else in a different way of, of referencing. So you can yeah. see how later higher and different levels of meaning connected to it. But the question is which ones would be consistent with what it's originally and what, what it's, you know, in creation and what, what it isn't. Yeah. I'd like to move this in a couple of directions, but the first direction I'd like to take this in is the direction you just went, Tom. And that's the sort of this uh, subcreating. And that's what we're referring to here. And all subcreation is in some sense uh, chimerical, you know, in the sense of putting things together that aren't normally put together. Like when we think about like a centaur, a centaur is, you know, the torso and the head and arms of a man or a woman. And then the, the rest of the body is the horse. So we've put some things together or a pegasus or whatever you want to, you know, point to Griffin. These are things that are composite images and, uh, Consequently, we're trying to create some kind of meaning, but it's derivative. Uh, you know, when we do that, we're, we're drawing on uh, something that is, uh, you know, obviously a, a human in character in the case of a centaur and obviously equestrian in that character. And we're putting them together and we're making something kind of new, but not in an absolute sense. It's not as though we're bringing into being something that doesn't already exist. We're, we're, we're dealing with two things that exist and we're working with those things. Now, um, when it comes to uh, how we think about the world itself, human beings and horses, rabbits and ducks, kind of the way that the modern Enlightenment uh, project uh, kind of proceeded when it came to uh, providing a basis in reality for literature and human works of art, uh, you had the historic uh, and the uh, physical uh, sort of things that you could allude to. So like within the, the world of biblical interpretation, and one of the ways that you can, you know, you know, we've over the last couple hundred years have controlled, uh, you know, sort of the range of legitimate interpretations uh, is by uh, talking about the historical grammatical 
when it comes to what the range of possibilities are. So let's take a look at a biblical text and we say, okay, the way to understand uh, this text is to understand, you know, the historic, you know, sort of the, 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 the historic situation in which this particular event occurred and is being written about or the sort of the conventions of language and how literature, you know, sort of works in terms of grammar and so forth. Uh, but there's this, this point of reference that's real and objective that we can point to and say that this is speaking to that. And when we talk about ducks and rabbits, we can say, well, this is just a duck that looks like a rabbit in this particular picture, but it's actually a duck or vice <laughs> versa, you know, and sometimes, and that's kind of the way that modern interpretation has proceeded when it comes to sort of adjudicating disputes uh, with regard to meaning in text or even meaning in visual art. There's something that's being alluded to here that's real and physical and uh, is historical in character. And those are our points of reference. But that's not, that does, that's not necessarily the way that things always were. And we'll get into that in a minute. And I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I guess the analogy of the line from the Republic, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself now. But what do you guys think about what I've just said? We've, we've kind of grounded it in that uh, uh, up until very recently. And now with postmodernism, all of that has uh, been thrown out. Uh, we no longer uh, have that. We've got radical subjectivism where it really could be a duck or a rabbit. It just depends on what you want. <laughs> yeah, I think they, I think what you see um, with well, with the, the kind of modern emphasis on um, historical critical, of course, is the closest thing it could get to a naturalistic reading. Once um, the the sciences kind of took on a kind of naturalistic emphasis, and so it, it it's not reading things in light of they're only reading things in light uh, in light of certain kinds of natural causality, um, and if there is some something else going on and other levels of meaning going on these would be things that that you wouldn't govern any definitive meaning of a text um these things would be supplied later now of course in christian circles that just reject naturalistic interpretation they'll move it towards kind of a um you know a canonical reading right so you move from merely what that text said in that particular instance when we rebuilt and reconstructed the history in the meaning of words and what they meant then, to then being able to say, okay, it takes on more depth as we, we get it into a richer web of meaning from canon, which is something in a way which, interestingly, I think Wittgenstein picked up on something that was a part of that, and I don't think he was taking it from Christianity, I think, but he, he noticed that just as we would say, the covenant context who sources itself on this canonical meaning becomes kind of the, the, the space in which those words are given their fuller sense. And he moves towards the social or, or the shared communities of, of meaning because it is those that carry with it some kind of sense of what something means beyond merely my own subjective interpretation of it. So he doesn't ground right. it necessarily in, in creation or, or, you know, uh, a canonical, but he does do it in, in social and commune communal rather than, than relativism. Yeah. Go ahead. Glenn. Now, it, I think it's for, for all of those out there who really like the grammatical historical and think that's the only way to read it. Um, I would encourage you to read what Paul does with the Old Testament in Galatians. Right. 
Um, that's clearly not how the scriptural writers approached the text. And while I've heard the argument that, well, just because they did it, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean you can do it. That seems to be a really weak argument because aren't we supposed to learn how to read the text from looking at how the text was read by the scriptural authors? Right. And typo um, typologies are, you know, scriptural. I mean, you know, we have, you know, the Apostle Paul tell us that Adam is a type of Christ in Romans 4. So typological mm -hmm. reading is something that Paul did. And I think um, when it comes to the Reformers, uh, in particular, they're uh, and then Augustine and, and others, you know, the, the patristics, they, they uh, very intentionally uh, looked for Christ in the Old Testament. And right. who is the first to encourage us to do this? Christ, you know, on the road <laughs> to Emmaus. <laughs> yeah. Well, even before then. Yeah. Even before then, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And these are the things that speak of me. That's right. Yeah. And John. Which means that for Jesus, a Christological reading of the Old Testament is the way to go. Right. Right. Now, here's now here's the question. And, and I want to take this, uh, you know, a little deeper than even, uh, you know, you know, you know, people who read the Bible typologically tend to go. I think we should read creation typologically. And the reason is because of the fact that Christ is the logos through whom all things came into being and for whom all things were made. So uh, there is a sense in which creation at large also uh, does the sort of thing that we're talking about in, you know, uh, say the Old Testament. And what that means is that not only are human works of literature and art representational, creation itself is representational. Now, that's a, a step that uh, was taken by uh, theologians in, in antiquity. Uh, this was a, a kind of a way of thinking that, that they practiced, uh, yeah. but uh, has been rejected by uh, many people today, definitely modern people, but also Christian people, uh, particularly people yeah. who are, you know, very wedded to the historical grammatical approach to interpretation. They cannot read the world Christologically. Yeah, there's, there's a very interesting um, theological point that can be made about that, you know, what you, you were just saying in terms of our, our core Christian vision. Um, creation, um, everything that it is, is a communication of the goodness and the perfections of God. So God is the primary analogate to use that. In other words, what goodness is, what being is, what um, life is, what love is, has its primary ground in God, its primary meaning in God. So creation is a communication of that. It's an analogy of that. So creaturely being is fundamentally analogous. So it isn't univocal. It is, it, it is not literal in that sense. To be literal is to be analogous, which means not to be exactly like it is in God, but to be a kind of representation. And then on the other level, we have metaphor, which has its primary analogous in the creaturely, but can be applied to God, but only in a way um, when it, all of its all of its um, 
you know, uh, limits have been taken away. So we know that when we're using it in relation to God, we're not using it in any way like we use it in relationship to the creature. And so, so you already have language and, and reference in a Christian vision completely ripped away from any hyper university or hyper literalism that has tended to dominate, I think, the historic critical approaches to to uh, reading and uh, in, in their more crass forms. Yeah. Now, the world as representation is something that I think Christians should be able to embrace, but haven't for a range of reasons. I think some sometimes because they confuse uh, this this uh, this conviction that the world is, in some sense, represented representational with either, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of, a, I guess, a, a legitimization of subjectivism, which is absolutely the reverse of the case, uh, or, you know, a, a tendency to maybe, uh, maybe uh, see people tempted to, you know, sort of uh, either fall into idolatry or, some form of pantheism. Um, so th- I think those are the reasons why people sometimes recoil from the idea that the world as representation is intended to communicate to us because they're afraid that people will fall into those sides of the road and fall into the pits on either side. But anyway, I see you're trying to say something there, Glenn. I cut you off. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things here. First of all, we, we did an entire show on this once uh, where we were talking about a meaning that's embedded in nature. And you can even see this in scripture. I mean, the number of times where the Psalms or Jesus in his parables points to nature to show a spiritual point or a truth about God or something like that. We see it in Romans 1. Um, I think, though, one of the things that's kind of intriguing on this point is an argument that Lewis made where he said that your mind is the organ of truth but you are, or of of understanding, I believe was the word he used. But your imagination is the organ of meaning. So through the use of imagination, through the use of our ability to create images, which is really what imagination points to, uh, we find meaning in, in Lewis's case, he'd argue in, in pretty much everything. But in the same way, whether it's... Um, it's typological or it's metaphorical uh, or allegorical or something like that, whichever route we want to choose, we can look at the physical world around us and see pictures of things that are fully explicated in in scripture. Uh, A simple example that's perhaps overused is the idea of caterpillars turning into butterflies. The process is really rather remarkable. When the caterpillar goes into its chrysalis, the body liquefies. The body itself doesn't transform, you know, legs to legs or anything like that. It liquefies and comes out as a totally different thing when it comes out on the other end. People have used butterflies as an analogy for the resurrection ever since Sunday school was invented (laughs) and probably earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's a bad analogy, right. as long as you understand its limitations. And it doesn't mean that that isn't a meaning that God himself put into it in this utterly bizarre and improbable way of transforming from one phase to another. 
Yeah. Now, all these things are relevant uh, when it comes to, you know, interpreting scripture, but it also, these things are also relevant when it comes to the sacraments. And I'm thinking particularly of, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sometimes you'll hear people, uh, you know, justify the sacraments uh, by saying that they are visualizations of words. And I think there's some, some you know, basis for saying that. But uh, then the question is, why not just have the words and sort of leave off, <laughs> you know, these, these, these physical, you know, uh, sort of uh, uh, histrionics, you know, that, that we're employing. Well, Cal- Calvin's answer to that was because we are physical creatures and are so tied to the physical world that it's hard for us to raise our minds, to elevate our minds to spiritual things. And so God graciously gives us these visible pictures, these actions that we take as a way of uh, strengthening our faith and helping us comprehend the promise that he gives us. But He goes beyond that, but that is part of the answer that he gives. Yeah, and I think that's fair. But I think that what it implies is that there's already meaning resonant in the signs themselves. So in other words, uh, if water didn't cleanse, uh, then would we use it for baptism? Uh, you know, would, you know, let's say, uh, why not use orange juice or, you know, you know, you're getting at, uh, because, uh, if, if it's just liquid that, that would do the job, then liquid it would be. But, uh, water, uh, is a thing that has a, you know, a range of practical uh, uses in daily life, and we can't live without it. That's another thing that's important about it. You can live without orange juice. It might yeah. be tough, but you can. But you can't live without water. So well, I, I we always, get, we, I always say that, you know, especially with uh, my Baptist upbringing, is that, uh, you know, there's a reason it was called wine. Of course, with you know, <laughs> and, not, and not grape juice. Don't right. don't be drunk with grape juice. Um, but, but it's, it's just a joke, but I, I think that I, I think your point well taken. I don't think there is anything arbitrary about the signs used. And I don't think it is merely just something that the covenant community of Israel alone could understand. They may have had, they, of course, they had special revelation and they're able to understand sure. in the sacrificial system and all that something. But there is something that resonates from all of creation, which those things, as the gospel goes to every tribe and nation, to every story and myth and everything else, also, I think, um, is connected to a universal grammar, if you will, of meaning that, that although right. with the rich plenitude of creation and being, still carries with it something that is resembles what others come to know and understand these things as. So what we're saying here is that the, the meaning was resonant in water and bread and wine and not sort of constructed in an an historical environment through a particular experience of a community, you know, even though the community in this case is Israel, these are, these are things that communicate to everybody. You could be from China, you could be from Papua New Guinea, you could be from Africa, you could be from the Americas. Bread and wine and water all communicate. You get the point, <laughs> you know, because the, the meaning inheres. In but the meaning also refers. So, uh, and this is where things get kind of tricky uh, mm-hmm. with some people with regard to the sacraments. When, so when Jesus says, this is my body, 
right? So uh, that what you know what is is getting at <laughs> is <laughs> is really merely pointing to something that was you know uh, sacrificed two thousand years ago, or is there some sense in which it's referring to and connecting us in a real way to something that's uh, the case today uh, that uh, is eternal in character? Um, no, and that's where all of the debates, uh, you know, with regard to the sacraments tend to go, uh, because that's, uh, you know, everything is sort of like, you know, sort of like that, that is the question. So people who have a low view of the sacraments tend to, uh, think of the sacraments just in the, the sense that I, you know, was uh, speaking, uh, at first that these are just things that kind of, uh, or signs that exist maybe physically in our presence, but they make the connection uh, to history only in our minds. So the, uh, you know, the connection is made there, but not in any other sense. Whereas uh, kind of higher views of the sacraments, uh, which mean, which imply higher in the sense that they've got real content and they actually do connect you to the things that are being referred to. Uh, make the connection not just in your head but out in reality itself in some sense so when i uh you know receive the bread and the wine uh in the lord's supper it's not just bread and wine it's in some sense by by means of the bread and the wine that i'm actually participating in or receiving the very things that are being referred to so this is where it all, and this getting, getting us back to duck rabbits, how do we get here from duck rabbits? Well, this is exactly what the whole duck rabbit thing is getting at. You know, is it just in our heads? Is it out in the world? If it's out in the world, in what sense is it out in the world? Is it just historical or is there something even higher than the historical and the grammatical to which uh, these things connect us? This is all very important stuff. If we're going to think about, you know, the Christian faith. And even today, when we think about our, participation in the body of Christ. Is that just something that happens in our head? Is it just, you know, is, is that just referring to some, or some sort of ability that we had to imagine ourselves connected to a community? Are we, are we really connected to a community? And is that community really connected to Christ? Yeah. A couple of things here. First of all, just sort of a general observation. A lot of Baptists that I know make a great deal about the importance of getting baptized after your conversion. Uh, although they don't have a theology that really explains why, it's sort of this arbitrary command of Christ to do it. And But at the same time, they tend to have a fairly low view of the Lord's Supper. Again, it's an arbitrary command by Jesus that we do this. It's it, you know, That's all there is to it. Um, what I have been thinking about, and particularly in connection with the supper, is that there are two things I think we need to pay attention to. One of them is that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is discussing this, the metaphor of the body refers to the local church. And when you look at the particular abuses that were occurring during the Lord's Supper, they were abuses of the local church body. So where he talks about failure to discern the body, that could be pointing to the utter lack of community and unity there, the kind of thing that you're talking about. This is not just in our head. This is something that is real, that is important, because we are all united because we're part of Christ. And so treating that unity badly is 
effectively treating Christ badly. But the other part of it, now, I was really good with that. I was like, okay, the, you know, the, so the body of Christ that we're talking about here is the local church. Great. Uh, this gets me away from my Catholic upbringing with transubstantiation and all of that. Okay, fine. Then the problem. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul says, this bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Well, yes, of course it is. So that fits with the community. Then he says, is not the cup which we bless participation in the blood of Christ? That's where things get dicier, because you can't use the blood of Christ as a metaphor for the community. Right. That's a good point. So, So we're now moving... I would argue what we're dealing with here is something that is multivalent. It's got several different significations. It is a memorial. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It is a recognition of the community around you as all being united together in one body as members of the body of Christ. But there's something more going on because it's not just participation in the body, it's participation in the blood. And so I think we have to add that extra dimension there as well. Um, and what, what I what I usually see is people who want to op- want it to operate on one level. It's symbolic of this, or it is the union with Christ is that. I think we've got to think on multiple levels, and there are probably more that I haven't even even considered yet. All right. Now, one of the things I want to do at this point is introduce something that may bring a little clarity, maybe add another layer of complexity. <laughs> and that, and that is uh, the analogy of the line from the Republic. So in the Republic, uh, we have Socrates, you know, in his interlocutors, and they're talking about what is justice. And, you know, one of the things that they're struggling with is, uh, you know, how do we know what is the case? And so then that gets you into, you know, theories of knowledge, epistemology. And one of the things you see in the Republic is a kind of low view of human art, the human arts, uh, because of the very thing we were just talking about, the duck rabbit. Well, you think it's this, but I think it's this. And how do we know what it is, really? Uh, it's, a, it's an image. It's a, it's a human artifact. It's, a, it's meant to represent. And maybe we have a clever artist who is intentionally being uh, coy and tricky, uh, you know, to <laughs> deceive us. Um, and if that's the case, then art, uh, in some sense, is the means by which uh, we are deceived. Um, mm. And this troubled uh, Plato, and it you know comes out in the conversation that Socrates has with Glaucon and others. But in this particular uh, part of the Republic, the, the analogy of the line it draws a kind of horizontal line separating the sensible world from the intelligible world. So the sensible world can be broken down into two categories. You've got basically the world of physical objects, like we were talking about, real ducks, real rabbits, right? You know, they're out there, they're hopping around, they're swimming around, they're flying, that kind of thing. And then we have the drawing, the duck rabbit, which is the human creation, which is a copy uh, of the actual physical things. Um, And it's sort of a cleverly... uh, uh, d- drawn one that's intended to deceive us, to confuse us. What is it referring to? Is it referring to a duck? Is it mm-hmm. referring to a rabbit? Well, that's the problem with all art, according to Socrates, is that you, it, you, it lends itself to this kind of problem. But that's uh, what just you know referring to the sensible. So he says we can have you know opinions about um, 
what we can see, you know, uh, we can have thoughts uh, about them, but uh, we don't really know them in the way that uh, we, sh we, we long to know. Uh, we have beliefs, uh, and this is where, um, you know, when it comes to the physical world and history itself, we can have beliefs about what happened. Uh, and uh, we can, uh, when it comes to the things that human beings make, we can have opinions about those things. But this, these, these uh, uh, opinions and beliefs um, are not the knowledge that uh, is, you know, really sound and, and uh, helpful. What he, what he says is to get that kind of thing, we have to go into the intelligible, sort of the world of the mind. And when we use our minds properly, uh, we can apprehend realities that are unseen. And this is where he gets into, you know, his conversation regarding the forms and so forth, these realities. Now, sometimes people make light of the forms because, uh, you know, they're, I think, working with a, a set of uh, ideas about what Plato is referring to that, that, are, that are kind of crude. So let me, let me make an apology for uh, abstract objects, you know, objects that are actually apprehended mentally, but not, but not seen physically. So uh, we, we do, we, we talk all the time about, uh, you know, the laws of nature. What are we referring to when we talk about the laws of nature? Are we talking about laws in the sense the, that we, uh, you know, uh, talk about human laws that govern our societies, or are we talking about just as just the way things actually physically work? Uh, it's, it's the second, right? But we use the term uh, law uh, in order to sort of uh, understand that these are the things that happen in the course of nature and they're unalter unalterable. They just kind of happen the, these ways. Uh, but we don't really think that there are laws. In the same way, when it comes to the forms, we don't actually think there are big like forms in the sky like cookie cutters <laughs> you know, that give everything their their character but what we're saying is is that kind of an, in a way through our minds we can see that that reality is is kind of structured in a certain set of ways and that uh these ways uh of structuring reality uh provide the physical world that we can actually see with their eyes the character that uh we can also apprehend, but not with our eyes, but just through our, our intellects and say, okay, this is the case. Um, another way to talk about this is like numbers. Like when we talk about uh, math, we can see how math relates to the physical world. You know, you put, take one apple and you put an, another apple next to it and you've got two apples, right? So the numbers correspond to the objects, but we don't actually perceive the numbers themselves, right? But the numbers are real. We're not just making them up. In the same way, we can say that when it comes to knowing the world uh, around us by understanding it uh, using, you know, the intellect and apprehending these realities that are not seen with the eye, but can be apprehended by the mind, we're, we're saying that these things uh, aren't stuff that we're kind of like projecting into the sky, but we're saying that the in some sense, the, the world that we see around us is a, as a reflection of another set of things that are real. Now, the way Christians have historically understood this is that the location of these forms is the mind of God. So it's the mind of God that gives the creation its, its, its ordered sort of uh, 
and uh, nature, and it's and it, it provides the natures to the different things that we see. So like the pigness of the pig, the manness of the man, the womanness of the woman, that kind of stuff. Anyway, some thoughts. Um, I mean, wh- one of the fascinating things that Christianity does with this um, is, is it, re- it recognizes, and that's why you have something that goes by the broad definition, Christian Platonism, which actually is just a whole tradition, which will include Christian Aristotelianism, Christian Neoplatonism, a lot of these who are drawing off of different philosophical categories to help explicate biblical um, realities that are metaphysical and aren't dealt with with the historical. In other words, the the historical won't deal can't deal with merely historical description of metaphysical things like uh, infinity, right? <laughs> um, you can say from everlasting to everlasting, but really to unpack that, you, you, you have to start to draw out these other categories. Well, one of the things that the doctrine of creation um, altered from that, that, that kind of uh, Platonic vision was that it didn't want to see those forms as uh, having, prior to their embodiment in a real creature, some kind of nature. And this is what you were saying. It's not as though these these things are some kind of nature prior to them having created reality. But in the created reality is that stamp, if you will, of the kind of thing that it is that we can discern above its embodiment, above its sensibleness, to where we can gather that essence, that meaning, that definition um, what it means to be a human. Well, we don't have access to it apart from our experience of humans, but our experience of humans merely through the sensible allows us to lift up above that to that humanness, which we understand then as you know the, the fuller understanding of the reality and the, the being that it is, and ultimately the form being from the mind of God stamped on it. Um, so, so I mean, my whole point there was that Christianity understood something very valuable in Plato and Aristotle, that they were articulating the fact that the surface is, is not self-standing, um, and, and, and there is something permanent um, about created nature's kinds and, and the like. But that permanence you have access to through the sensible and the creaturely. That's what allows you to make the judgment, but you lift, you, you lift up above it, um, if you will. And this is where you start to discern um, its essence, if you will, or the kind of act of being it is. And then you start to recognize that this has its, uh, what, what it is and that it is from, from the creator. Yeah. yeah. Another uh, w- just something that I think is worth mentioning. We, um, you know, we talk about the, you know, Christian Platonism a lot. Um, it's worth remembering that this isn't a purely abstract thing, that when you reject this, it takes you in a lot of um, uh, dangerous directions. But to, you know, and not just in the realm of, of philosophy, uh, let, let's, let's take a concrete example. I, whenever I was teaching this, the idea of universals and things like that, I always used the example of leaves on a tree. Um, you know, how can you have all these leaves are different? No two leaves are identical. You change species of trees, you go to bushes. We all use the same word leaf. Well, how do you justify that? Where do you get the, you know, this idea, uh, you know, if they're all different, what is it that unites them and makes them all a leaf? 
And there, there are a couple, you know, and I, so I go through all this and I ask him, I tell him, you know, this was really the driving question in medieval metaphysics. This is the central question in medieval philosophy. And I would ask, how many of you have ever thought of this before? And nobody raises their hands. How many of you think, stay up at night pondering this? Nobody. How many of you think this is really important? Occasionally, I got a hand going up. And, and I would tell them, all right, now, really, I've just set you up because I used a really trivial example of these leaves. What if we change it? What does it mean to be human? Is there a such thing as universal human nature? Is there a such thing as universal human rights? If there is, where does it come from? You can't get it empirically. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this is huge. And uh, one of the reasons for starting with the duck rabbit <laughs> is this. <laughs> because what, what you end up with when you lose a connection uh, to the uh, world that we're talking about here, the universals, uh, it costs you in a lot of ways that you don't expect. And it ends up costing you with, you know, how do you justify human rights if there's no such thing as human? How do you justify maleness uh, as a category as opposed to femaleness if there's no universal category for male and female or categories for male and female? Why not just sort of like confuse them? So, you know, depending on how you look at you know, someone, he's a man or a woman, you know, it becomes now just simply the, the you know, the, the interpretive power or the interpretive authority of the viewer. There's nothing really out there uh, to, uh, to determine the nature of a thing. It's all in our heads. So that you end, what you end up with is this, uh, you know, radical subjectivism. And that's not really... F sort of workable uh, for a lot of reasons. So somebody has to come along and just sort of like enforce arbitrary things that can't really be justified. And that's kind of where we find ourselves now. Uh, no one is allowed to exercise uh, judgment independently, paradoxically, because, uh, you know, uh, th there are no points of reference outside the self. If there are points of reference outside the self, then we don't need an authority figure going around all the time, forcing us to say yeah. something is the case. Uh, you only find yourself in a situation like that when there is the kind of radical subjectivity that we see around us and the radical rebel relativism that you see around us. And a radical relativism that is rigidly enforced. That's it. Yeah. 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 And one of the things I think also that, I mean, and Christians, I think, wrestle with this is, I mean, on the one hand, you know, the doctrine of creation, however fallen, we, we you know, affirm with Paul that the, the visible um, attests to the invisible, but in do, so doing it, it's also attesting to the visible, um, because it's through that light that you have some sense of what things are. This is why he could say that, that the, you know, that the pagans, who don't have access to the law through special revelation still do what the law, you know, something about what creation, um, you know, speaks. And so you have some meaning, some reference. And so on the one hand, we could say with the natural law folks, <laughs> um, you know, there is inherent within the creature, the creaturely, something that exhibits, um, you know, what it is 
and how the gift it is and 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 in how it should be unfolding maleness femaleness you know procreation there's inclinations of things but we also recognize the distortion so you know, um, so the kind of hyper-Christian Aristotelian would say, oh, wait, just through reason, we could almost read right off of nature by itself the, all, the moral law and then be fine if we just use our reason the right way. But then the Christian Platonist side is going to say, well, wait a minute, the surface does reveal some things, but there has to be a conversion going on there. You have to you have to participate in, in the trans in transcendence, if you will, you have to partake of Christ in order to begin to read that natural law again, freshly in the right way. And so, yes, natural law, yes, it it gives hints to which no one is excusable. Yes, we should promote it from the light of Christ. But yes, conversion is necessary to fully apprehend its deeper meaning and orient it towards its, its fulfillment. Yeah, I think that's a really important caveat to, to make there, Tom, because, um, you know, and we even see it uh, in the Republic. So what you have in the Republic, of course, <laughs> is another another story. And in that story, we have the myth of the cave, right? And there you have yeah. in the cave a bunch of, a bunch of guys who are chained uh, and they can't turn their heads. And uh, they're looking at a, a wall and uh, behind them there is a fire. And in front of the fire, there is a wall, another wall. And uh, then there are people with objects on their heads that are walking behind the wall. So you can't see the, the, their bodies, but you can see the objects in their heads as the shadows are cast on the wall. Okay. So everybody's arguing about uh, the meaning of the shadows. But uh, there is a character, uh, one of the guys who manages to free himself, and he stands up and looks and he sees the fire and he sees what's going on behind him. He has a kind of conversion experience. He can see things that he didn't see before. Now, there's a connection between the shadows and the objects, and there always was. So there is some sense in which uh, he was already seeing something, but it was through a glass darkly, as Paul knows. There is a a measure of knowledge, but it's not the fuller understanding that's only possible through a kind of conversion, a kind of turning around. And uh, and then, of course, we know how the rest of the story goes. He actually goes outside of the cave and discovers the sun in the sky and the, and the world outside and so forth. And what's uh, being brought to our attention in all of this is that, yes, there is a noetic transformation, a transformation of the mind that's required in order to apprehend things in a deeper way, in a more truthful way. doesn't mean there was no truth at the start. That's right. That's but right. you were dealing with, uh, you know, impressions that were being made upon you that uh, were, were not giving you sort of the depth of insight that you really need. And so with regard to, you know, you know the transformation that we experience as Christians, we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into kingdom of light in very much the, the sort of myth of the, of the cave sense. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing things. We're responsible for what we know. We don't know them as fully as we should. And we don't know that uh, these things ultimately, and that's what goes on in the myth of the cave, refer to the good itself. The sun in the sky outside of the, of the cave mouth is the good in itself. And of course, as Christians, we yeah. say that's Christ. Christ yeah. is who's the source of light. Anyway, um, we should probably begin to wrap this up. I have to uh, get somewhere here. I know we're kind of cutting things a little short today, but um, 
it's been a fun show. And I want to bring to, 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 to the attention of our uh, listening audience, uh, even our viewing <laughs> audience, the, the fact that they might have been introduced this particular problem, the duck rabbit, when they were kids watching Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, the duck rabbit sequences where it's <laughs> rabbit season and no, it's duck season. It's rabbit season. No, it's duck season. And you know how it always goes. Daffy keeps getting shot. It's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's duck hunting season. That, sir, is an investigated fabrication. It's rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. I say it's duck season, and I say fire. <laughs> it is great, and we were and we were noting those guys are pretty sharp. Those those cartoonists, you know Chuck Jones and all those guys back in the day, they were uh, actually fairly well educated guys, yeah. and uh, I can't help but believe that they were referring to the duck rabbit problem uh, in <laughs> philosophy <laughs> when they did the duck rabbit season sequence. I don't know. Maybe you, you guys think something different, but uh, that's my suspicion. It would be it would be fun to find out. Uh, but but anyway, for now I'm going to run with that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Hey, well, we we really do appreciate your interest in the theology podcast. A number of listeners support us on a monthly basis, and yes, those gifts are not only appreciated; they actually go to make the show possible. Uh, there are expenses that we incur in the creation of every episode, and. Uh, because of the faithful giving of people through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and in other ways, we have the resources to cover our costs, and we're glad for that. Now, one of the things that we're going to be doing here probably uh, pretty soon is we're probably going to be doing another Kickstarter campaign to help fund our, our uh, 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 Southeast podcast tour that we're hoping to have in the fall. So keep your eyes open for that. There are expenses that uh, we would we do incur when we go on the road, and they're not covered by the regular giving of folks. That uh, we need a little extra help if that's that if that if that's going to happen. So you know, obviously there are plane tickets and the cost of gas and all that kind of stuff, lodging and so forth that, that we that we have to cover in order to have that tour. So uh, we'll let you know as things come together for that. Uh, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, there are ways for people to, to contribute. Anyway, thanks again for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate it. And bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.